0: it was a it was a tough time we played to small crowds it was
1: just very discouraging if you got to know jack you know one thing's very clear he's a highly competitive man
2: the northwest doesn't get a good rap it's overlooked by the other hotbeds florida texas california look over at mary's peak If you saw the clouds, you had about 20 minutes of playing, and then the rains were coming.
3: Honestly, though, I don't care what time it is, what generation it is, never giving up is never going to get old.
2: He
0: didn't appreciate that because I was protecting baseball. He didn't give a dang about baseball.
4: One of the great stories in the history of NCAA sports that a team out of the pacific northwest not necessarily a baseball haven or hotbed traditionally a lot of good baseball but not the area where you would expect a college national championship team to emerge from
5: this is dynasty in the woods the story of beaver baseball today we go back in history to marvel at the humble beginnings of the oregon state baseball program Well, not exactly the true beginning, since OSU has carried a baseball program since the early 1900s, and we won't go quite back that far today. But beginnings or not, humble is still a fair description of the circumstances in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, especially for a program in the cold, wet climate of the Pacific Northwest. You know, baseball, I think, is one of those games that was difficult in the Pacific Northwest at the time. It didn't have artificial fields, and didn't have all this diamond dry substance, so you missed a lot of games.
6: Well, you know, our kids don't get to play enough up here.
3: That is the beauty of Oregon kids, is they are a little tougher.
6: Today, they all
0: play the same amount of games, but not then. We'd go south spring break, and they'd played anywhere from 25 to 30 games.
5: There's just so many factors and it's almost hard to comprehend but yeah i mean shoot college baseball really is in
1: many ways just kind of the ultimate warm weather sport from the way you can recruit to the way you can practice to how early you can play teams from outside in the warm weather regions are just at such a disadvantage
5: you used to start the season february 1st and of course obviously it's rain we can't put your tarp on after it's rain. it's got to dry out so you'd go down and play 15 or 16 games on the
2: road and never practice on your field
6: But it was a very low-key sport, 20 games maybe, if, if they were lucky, and they just played local teams.
5: Ralph Coleman coached the Oregon State baseball team from the 1920s off and on through the 60s. This is his son, Ralph Coleman Jr., who played at OSU for his father in the 50s, back when OSU was known as Oregon Agricultural College.
6: It was pretty primitive. There was no fence out in the outfield, and the ground was hard, and if the ball got past the outfielders, it was a home run. In those days, you could hit a, a line drive and it would go 300 feet maybe and roll and roll and roll because there were no outfield fences.
5: This is Dow Pulling, who also played for Ralph Coleman in the 50s.
6: The facilities were rather limited. We had no fall practices of any kind. We worked out several times during the, the winter in uh, what is now McAlexander Fieldhouse. We used to call it the armory. Very poor lighting, floor sawdust and things like that
5: the venue that ralph coleman coached at would later on be called coleman field when you were playing for ralph coleman (laughs) what did they call it then
6: i think it was just the baseball field we had four bases no outfield fence probably a high school grandstand on the third base side and no lights and that was the extent of it college
5: baseball at the time was no cakewalk Dow Poling remembers what it meant at the time to earn a quarter of a scholarship his freshman year.
6: And it was like uh, $30 a, a month, you know, and, and to do that we used to have to go out and work under the grandstand of old Bell Field, pick up the, you know, the garbage after football games.
5: Not only did the players do extra work, many coaches would supplement their incomes by coaching multiple sports. Legendary basketball coach Paul Valenti also coached the baseball freshman team. And Hall of Fame basketball coach Slats Gill was the head baseball coach for six years.
6: The budget for baseball was considerably less than it is today. We were allowed two baseball bats. If you broke them, you'd have to beg, borrow, and steal from somebody else You know, if you were going to hit again.
5: And the talent pool to draw from was limited.
6: The people on the roster were not what you would call five-star athletes. They were mostly homegrown kids.
5: Most programs try to draw from the nearby areas, after all, so the teams close to recruiting hotbeds are at a clear advantage. Now, I won't say Oregon kids can't play baseball as well as California kids, but I will say that Oregon kids can't play baseball as much as California kids. For example, a young pitcher from the Golden State named John Sippel. I think this was like my
1: 12-year-old year in Little League, and we had pitcher day on February 5th, <laughs> and then started playing right after that.
5: John Sippel got used to playing baseball in early February when he grew up in California. Later on, he moved to Oregon and later pitched for the Beavers.
1: And I think about that in Oregon, like February 5th, oh no, that's not happening in
5: February. Teams like Oregon State always had to strike a balance between recruiting homegrown kids who grew up with a limited playing season and therefore may be less experienced, or recruiting kids from the South who will have to leave the pleasant, sunny conditions they already have. And like you heard Dow Poling say, early on for Oregon Agricultural College, they went mostly with the homegrown kids. It's impressive, then, that many of those teams were pretty good. The Beavers even made the College World Series in 1952, although it would be the first and last time the Beavers would reach Omaha in the 20th century. And that roster was a perfect microcosm of Northwest baseball at the time, a lot of Oregon kids, many of whom were splitting time with other sports. The catcher, left fielder, third baseman, second baseman, and first baseman all played another sport besides baseball. And part of that was just how college sports were in the 50s, no matter where you were. But especially for teams in the Northwest, the perception was that these teams just didn't have the high-level talent or resources to succeed. So when Oregon State baseball entered a new era in the 1970s, the new head coach had to deal with that perception. The job
0: that I thought I was hired for wasn't really what I came into.
5: When Jack Riley took over the program in 1973, the thing that caught him by surprise was not how hard it was to play baseball in the Pacific Northwest. He had been coaching at Lower Columbia College up in Washington, so he understood
2: how to coach in this area.
3: His biggest thing was recruit Oregon kids. They already know it rains.
2: You were tough kids that wanted to play baseball and playing for Jack, you better be a tough kid. Two people that saw how Jack Riley operated,
5: his daughter, Pam, and one of his catchers, Ron Dyer. It was trying at
2: times, but it also, it built character.
5: Jack was a hard-nosed coach, not the last of his kind at Oregon State. But he was caught off guard by something when he arrived at OSU, and the thing he didn't see coming was how the PAC-8 conference was developing a deeper divide between the Southern programs and the Northern ones. Not only did teams from the South have more resources and better weather, it didn't help when the 1973 oil crisis skyrocketed the cost of gasoline, forcing programs like Oregon State to reconsider if traveling South was financially feasible.
0: And the lines and the gas and everything, well, lo and behold, they decided that they couldn't afford to travel and so forth, so they cut it to the north and south. You know, we struggled a lot in the north because of the weather, and so it was a problem for the administration because they decided to fund us regionally. So we didn't get too good of funding
7: Jack Riley had always said, we could compete with some of those Southern Division schools if they ever had to come up and play us on our home field. But as it's set up now, we've always got to go down there.
3: He always thought it would be a a good advantage if we could get those Southern schools up to have to play in Oregon, because a lot of years they wouldn't come up. They had all the cards.
5: Oregon State was relegated to playing only teams from the Pac-8 Northern Division, while the Southern Division teams could play amongst themselves and all the other sunny area programs. Plus, when it came to postseason opportunities, the power balance was shifted heavily to the teams in the South.
0: It was so unfair with the South because no matter how much we won, and you had to realize that at that point in time, there were only 32 teams that could get a bid to the playoffs. Now it's 64. In the meantime, they had gotten Arizona and Arizona State in the South, and they just vote us down
5: on anything the South had so much power that some teams in the North just gave up. When Gonzaga eventually left the conference, their athletic director referred to the Southern schools as, and I quote, elitist. Oregon State, meanwhile, stuck it out in the Northern Division. But even though Jack Riley was frustrated with the imbalance of power within the conference, Jack was most rankled by what he calls inadequate support within his own athletic department. We didn't get the administrative support from Oregon State. And that is why the defining theme of Jack Riley's career was the two-headed monster he faced. Inconsistent support from his own school combined with the severe disadvantage that teams from the North were forced to tackle. As we'll see more fully in a moment, the toughest opponent Jack Riley ever faced at Oregon State wasn't any USC team coached by Rod Dato or any Washington State team under Bobo Brayton, or any other school for that matter. Jack's biggest task was simply keeping the baseball program afloat so they could go play those teams in the first place.
0: They couldn't get enough meat out of the so-called Olympic sports or non-income sports, whatever you wanna call them. And so it was a real struggle with uh, the scholarship monies that we had and so forth. So that was a time that was pretty trying financially and there's a lot of things we had to do.
2: The most important thing is Jack Riley kept baseball. I was in the era where they were dropping baseball on Jack. He just would not let it happen. This is
5: Ronnie Dyer, who played for Oregon State in the late 70s and early 80s, right in the midst of the most financially
2: difficult times for the program. I think everybody is appreciative of that, watching how Jack fought for the program. He would go to bat for you.
0: It was a fight. It was a battle. To try to stay there because everything was basically concern about football, which it rightly so. You can't have a good athletic department without a strong football program.
5: Jack understood the prioritization of football, but he couldn't help but wish the budget would be shifted slightly in his favor. Even the football coach DeAndros acknowledged all the work Jack was doing.
0: D. Andrews would always say, he's doing a great job with a program that's working on a shoestring budget. And I'd always wanted when that shoestring was going to get stronger.
5: It made it that much more frustrating that the OSU football team wasn't winning anyways. The football program was in the midst of a 28-year streak of losing seasons. That streak began the year before Jack Riley got hired and continued for five years after he left. So all Jack Riley knew during his 22 years of coaching was a losing football team and the resulting difficulty in funding. The football
0: program, every year was a losing season. So money was tight. Then Title IX came along and the cuts started.
2: Oregon was cutting their program It was the Title IX. It was all the different things was coming into effect, and Jack just was a bulldog. Jack Riley was
5: conflicted about Title IX. On one hand, he wanted women's sports to do well, but if men's sports like baseball were getting cut, well, that was his job on the line. Halfway through his time at OSU, the University of Oregon dropped their baseball program.
0: In '83, when Oregon, which very successful, never had a losing season in baseball history till about 1982, when they defunded them. So they chose
3: track, we drop track.
5: Track and field was not the only sport at Oregon State that got cut.
3: My dad did not get to watch me as an athlete mm. very much. That's because during the '80s is Title IX.
5: Yet another element made things more convoluted than they already were. As Title IX's influence grew, Jack Riley's own daughter, Pam, became an Oregon State student-athlete on the women's tennis team.
3: That's when they were trying to figure out what programs were going to get cut. They had to have equal opportunity, and so they wanted to cut baseball to implement women's programs.
5: Pam was fighting for women's tennis to stay, while her dad battled to keep baseball around.
3: So it was a really interesting time in our household because he had a daughter he loved and cherished, but I represented everything that was a threat to his program at Oregon State.
5: Her being a tennis player, it was an interesting dynamic for you, knowing that the other sports at Oregon State that could also be on the chopping block, she was a player on on one of those sports. So how did you handle that?
0: Well, uh, competitively. (laughs)
4: And I always remember going to those games and watching Jack Riley at work, coaching at third base, arguing with umpires, the intensity, the energy that he brought. Mike
5: Parker became Oregon State's radio announcer when Pat Casey was the coach, but even during the Jack Riley years, Mike would attend OSU games as a fan.
4: I would ask people about Jack Riley and and they would simply use a word that has certainly been applied to Pat through the years and that is competitive. Extremely
5: competitive, ultra-competitive. Jack Riley's well-known competitive streak played a role during what came next. With budget cuts looming, Jack's worst fears became reality. The official news came from University President Robert McVicker. The Oregon State baseball program would be disbanded.
0: They did actually cut baseball, and I thought I had lost my job, and
5: we had a big meeting with Dr. McVicker, Upon hearing his sport was being cut, Jack Riley gave the president a piece of his mind. And I really kind of lost it in a meeting because I got up and really
0: fought it. I told him he didn't understand a competitor. He didn't understand what it meant to lose this. I couldn't even tell you what I said, but people said that I really let it out. And that's that time i went back to my office and i was in with uh paul valini at that time and i looked up after about 15 minutes and there was dr robert mcvicker and he looked in he said don't feel bad about that i respect what you just did and that
7: kind of fired me up a little bit because i knew i wasn't going to get fired (laughs) jack had to get up in front of the athletic board a few times and just pound the table and absolutely demand we're sticking
2: around He would go in there and he would just battle and just tell them, it's not happening on my watch.
4: And that competitive level is why Beaver baseball continued to exist. He wasn't going to let the program die. Even when it was presented to him, you're cut, baseball's done. He just simply said, no, we're not.
5: Even when Jack brazenly defended the program, though, it still did not get a whole lot better right away. The time Jack was just talking about in particular, President McVicker took Jack Riley's outburst well, but Jack wasn't out of the woods yet.
0: But from that point on, it did get cut, but the alumni came to fight for it and we got it back. And that was the first time it was cut because it was cut a second time later on when they cut both wrestling, Dale Thomas and baseball.
5: Dale Thomas was a Hall of Fame OSU wrestling coach, and even he was dealing with the same problems. As for the baseball program, Jack Riley's teams never did miss a season, always managing to get their head back above water each time their program got cut. But to be constantly right on the verge of the end was exhausting.
0: It was a, it was a tough time we played to small crowds it was just very discouraging because nobody really cared about the sport at that point in time
5: at this point the lesson jack riley would always tell his daughter pam was particularly relevant for jack himself
3: the other thing my dad told me that was really valuable in my life is nobody's going to care more about what you're doing than you You need to believe in it so much that you get other people to want to believe.
5: So Jack Riley led the fight in keeping the baseball program alive. But even getting enough funding to play the teams in the South was a stretch. I know Jack was pretty active
1: in trying to find ways to raise money for the program because it was definitively tight budget.
0: It was a tough go, but we did do stuff to raise money to go on those trips South. We started uh, with the blessing of the
5: late Larry Herring of the Gables. The Gables was a Corvallis landmark of a restaurant for 50 years. OSU coaches ate there. When recruits were brought in, they often were brought to the Gables. Even better, the owner, Larry Herring, always gave back to the community. Larry was just really great at that, about supporting the local athletic programs. This is Randy Holmes, who used to play football for OSU and later became a chef at the Gables, working for Larry Herring.
1: With Corvallis High School and Crescent Valley High School, we would do fundraisers for the high schools for the athletic programs.
5: In a similar fashion to how local teenagers supported their high school teams, Oregon State partnered with the Gables to fundraise.
3: When I was playing tennis at Oregon State, he and I came up with a plan that we would go around to businesses and we would get restaurants to give us $20 coupon and we would sell a booklet and that would raise $20 for the Oregon State baseball program and if I sold it, I would get $20 to go towards a scholarship for me had
0: a coupon book for restaurants, where whoever sold them got half of what the value of it was. We sold a lot of them.
1: Nobody that plays baseball because of the limited scholarships, you know, is having everything paid for when they go. And I didn't didn't come from a family that had a bunch of money.
5: This is John Sipple, who played for Jack Riley in the mid-80s.
1: Jack had said that, you know, we could sell coupon books for, you know, local restaurants, buy one, get one free type of things. And, you know, it was 20 bucks. Of course, you're know, going back to 1983 and hey 20 bucks was a decent size purchase for some people. So I still remember going door to door, go in the evenings, go pound on doors, trying to, you know, raise a few bucks to be able to you know buy groceries and things like that.
3: I went around to the Gables and every restaurant in Corvallis, or store even, and then I went around to the community myself, didn't have a group or anything, and sold as many as I could and ended up raising $10,000 for the baseball program, which isn't very much, but so, and then I raised that much for me too. So that kind of helped and plus it promoted interest in baseball.
5: I think Pam is being modest, raising $20,000, half for her, half for baseball, is impressive. Especially since that's 1980s dollars, so really she raised the equivalent of nearly $50,000 in today's money. But it is funny that a Division 1 program had to do the same things the nearby high school JV football team would be doing. And I don't mean to suggest it's demeaning to fundraise, just the opposite. It shows the discipline and hard work to keep the baseball program alive. And they did fundraise enough to cover the cost of the road trip south. Although the Beavers did not exactly travel in style, the players carpooled in vans and
2: took turns driving all the way to Southern California and Arizona. Our first trip my freshman year, we took vans down to L.A. Jack was saving every nickel and dime that he could. This is Ron Dyer recalling a road trip in 1977. So we get down, and, and we're going to this part of town that I never would imagine. There were bars on everything, bars on the windows, and I'm looking around like, where are we? And Jack got a great deal on a motel for us to stay. And we get there, and they say, don't go out by yourself. And I just went to the game, went to my room, and just stayed put. But Jack was saving a dollar. Later on, as cash strapped as they already
5: were, Jack Riley lost the coupon booklet fundraiser. And I remember him
1: saying, I'm done fighting it, we're done, we're not selling coupon books. And I'm like, what? And he goes, yeah, they're not gonna let us keep the money. It all goes into the general athletic fund and been fighting this for a while. And I just told him, I said, well, we're not gonna sell them then
6: because we had a couple of athletic directors, Dutch Bachman being one of them, that that wanted to give up the sport, and Jack, Bottom, Tooth, and Dale. And that's, quite frankly, when I formed the dugout club, with the idea of raising money to give to Jack to help him recruit, because Dutch was trying to take money away from him all the time.
5: Hal Cowan goes way back with Jack Riley, first as teammates at Linfield, but then Cowan spent almost three decades in OSU's athletic department, so he saw what the baseball program was going through. He formed the Dugout Club, which allowed donors to give directly to the baseball program rather than the general athletic fund. Whatever money Jack got, he stretched it as far as he could. Even cleaning the stadium, replacing rotten seating, mowing the grass, painting, raking, whatever
2: it took... And he also enlisted the players to join in the legwork too. Jack would do all the little things, and we were, as players, we did a lot of things. We would put tarps on and off between classes.
1: I can remember the tarp crew,
2: we were the tarp crew. Condense everything to make sure he saved a dollar for the program. <laughs> Economics 101 from Jack Riley. You'd also have to go back to his wife, Jean. I think she did more laundry than anybody else in the, in the history of baseball. Gene was immensely helpful in finding ways to save money as well, especially
5: for a budget so tight that Jack operated for years without an assistant coach. And when he finally did get one, he had so little salary to offer that the assistant had to make ends meet by being a caretaker for an elderly booster.
0: So we had to work to get our money, but that's how we made it through that time.
3: He sold the concept that baseball was valuable. Baseball is good. Part of it was just
7: fielding very competitive teams for pretty much the whole time he was at OSU. He saved
6: baseball at Oregon State. And Jack, he was a stubborn guy. And to his credit, boy, he fought tooth and nail to keep that program going and look where it's developed now.
4: So that competitiveness has been a characteristic of the Beaver baseball program for a long time. Ralph Coleman, Gene Tanzelli, Jack Riley. His competitive spirit kept Beaver baseball not only alive but viable and at a very high level until he handed it off to Pat Casey who then took it to great heights. He deserves
5: a ton of credit for fighting to keep them from dropping baseball. Oregon chose to drop baseball and we chose to to drop track. Thank goodness that that he was willing to put up that battle and, and fight that fight. As for Jack Riley's daughter, don't forget that Pam helped fundraise for the baseball team while playing for the women's tennis team. So I asked Pam, how did you handle fundraising for the baseball program where your dad is the head coach, but the lifeblood of your own sport is at odds with the very program you're helping, so how did that work?
3: Uh, My mentality back then was I would just find another way. That is what happened is that our tennis team did get cut and I had to find another way. So we didn't have money for a coach. So I uh, went out and found a coach.
5: Pam convinced Don McGaley, the former OSU men's tennis coach, to work pro bono coaching the women's tennis team. That solution only worked out for one year before the tennis team was shut down for good, but it's impressive how instrumental Pam Riley was in keeping the program afloat as long as it did, not to mention helping save the baseball program at the same time. Later on, Pam finished her college career at San Diego State, while her dad stayed behind trying to make the baseball dream work in Corvallis.
6: What if baseball was more than just a game, more than entertainment? What if the next strikeout could feed a family of five for a whole year? The next home run could provide safe drinking water for an entire village. The next win could help lift an entire community out of poverty. What if we could use baseball to restore hope and save lives? Partnering
4: with Major League Baseball, Food for the Hungry is helping impoverished communities through the Striking Out Poverty Campaign. You can join top-level baseball players who are helping with relief efforts in the Dominican Republic, not to mention Food for the Hungry's other amazing campaigns that are changing lives all over the globe. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider donating to Food for the Hungry at fh.org. That's fh.org.
5: For years, Jack Riley and the Oregon State baseball team were always right on the edge of getting cut, having to stretch the budget, make every dollar go as far as it could. Finally, in the 1980s, they started to catch some breaks.
0: I think it was Ed Whalen, an old KGW
5: sports announcer,
0: (laughs) came down and interviewed and he put it on the air and Earl Child saw it.
5: Earl Childs, former president of Fred Meyer Incorporated, saw everything that the Beaver baseball program is going through and opened up his checkbook—a
0: pretty substantial amount for about six years, of almost close to a half a million dollars from Earl Childs Foundation—and we
5: started to be able to recruit some pretty good players. Earl Childs gave Jack Riley a huge break, but as much support as Jack got from some people outside of Oregon State he rarely felt supported by administrators at Oregon State. And that culminated in 1994.
7: If you go back to 94, Oregon State wins the Northern Division title, gets hosed, and Washington gets a bid to go to the NCAAs.
5: Kip Carlson was a reporter for the Corvallis Gazette-Times. He covered the 1994 Oregon State team that won the Northern Division, which, under normal circumstances, came with an automatic postseason berth. So the Beavers' eight-year postseason drought should have been snapped.
0: We won the conference, but Washington State had done some illegal stuff and they were in trouble
7: with the league. Washington State got in trouble for having given too much financial aid in spring sports, and so they became ineligible for the NC2A tournament. And at that point, you have to have 6 teams to qualify for an automatic berth. And so that left them with 5. They said you don't get the automatic bid that year, and you don't get it in
5: future years." During a year where Washington State wouldn't have sniffed an NCAA tournament berth anyways, their punishment actually hurt Oregon State the most because the league didn't qualify to give an automatic berth to the team with the best record in conference, which was OSU. Instead, the only way for a Northern Division team to make the tournament would be an at-large bid, which Washington got and not Oregon State. Now to be fair, Washington did have a good overall record, so it wasn't completely without merit. But still, Oregon State had won the conference, so why did the Beavers get left out? So we win the, the league by two
0: games, but Washington gets the bid because their administration battled for it and the politics of it all came, and it happens a lot in all of the sports where you see, well, how'd that team get a bid? Their record wasn't as good. Well, it was a little bit of that situation. We just didn't get the support from our administration.
5: It should be noted that this happened the year before, too. And that year, the University of Washington finished first, and they were the team to not get the automatic bid. So now in 1994, it kind of felt like payback for Washington to go to the postseason. But still that doesn't make it any easier to stomach for Oregon State which hadn't gone to the postseason either year and they had won the conference in 94 Jack Riley felt let down by his administrators and it's no coincidence that this 1994 season ended up being his last at Oregon State Jack Riley resigned in 1994 after a discouraging end to a great season and a great career
0: It was very disheartening, and uh, I let our administration know that uh, it was their fault.
5: Regardless of a disappointing end to 1994, Jack Riley could still hold his head high that in 22 years, he had accomplished his task of keeping beaver baseball not only afloat, but competitive and the future could be brighter still if the right replacement was hired. Jack Riley technically did not have the power to choose his replacement, although he was on the search committee. He could help provide a recommendation to Athletic Director Dutch Bachman, but Jack Riley worried that Bachman would ignore the advice of the search committee.
0: He didn't care what happened to baseball, and our relationship definitely was strained because I was a threat. He didn't appreciate that because I was protecting baseball. He didn't give a dang about baseball.
5: Jack Riley was a threat to Dutch Bachman because he was a threat to the status quo. Jack didn't want to just make the easy hire, which in Dutch Bachman's eyes would be the guy already in the program, assistant coach Kurt Kemp. But Jack Riley had a different individual in mind, an outside hire. And I had played Pat's
0: teams at George Fox, and I'd watched. Yeah, he was a hard-nosed Irishman, I knew that. He was by far my favorite.
5: Jack Riley was certain that Pat Casey was the best guy for the job, but that didn't mean Pat Casey would necessarily get hired just because Jack Riley liked him.
0: I called the committee and basically told them what Dutch was gonna do. He was gonna stay status quo,
5: he didn't even care about what was really going on. The search committee agreed that Pat Casey was the guy. Dutch isn't going to hire Pat. And so
0: they called Dutch. And of course, he wormed and squirmed around and said, Oh, no, I wasn't going to do that. I wasn't going to. Do that. Well, we have a recommendation. Are you going to take it? I mean, they put the pressure on. It. And the recommendation
5: was Pat. In the end, the search committee and Jack Riley got their way, and Pat Casey was hired.
6: When Jack retired, and I asked him, who should we hire? He says, Pat Casey.
5: Yeah,
4: didn't hesitate. Even with Kurt Kemp on hand as a longtime right-hand man, that that had to be a difficult decision on one level, but on another, not so difficult, because Jack knew he saw something in Casey that he knew that Pat was
5: the right guy for this job.
6: Absolutely. He wanted the best for the program.
5: This is Hal Cowan, former sports information director, talking with Mike Parker.
6: I know that was tough on Kurt he was a good guy, by the way, but Pat was the right man, the right time, and his results have proven that.
3: The biggest thing he did to save Oregon State baseball was to hire Pat Casey.
5: Jack kind of just handpicked Case out of the blue. He definitely knows how to choose the next coach. What happened in the aftermath of Jack Riley's career and the next decade of Beaver baseball into the mid-2000s will be the subject of next week's episode. You can already listen to that episode right now by becoming a premium member. Check out the link in the show notes to find out more. Also, please leave a rating and a review for this podcast. My thanks to the individuals who agreed to be interviewed especially for this episode. My name is Josh Worden. Talk with you next week on episode four of Dynasty in the Woods.